0: And welcome to another episode of Downtime at the Cranston Public Library. We're a podcast for cool people who love libraries where we talk about what we've been reading, what we've been watching, and what we've been loving. I'm your host, Taylor, and the branch librarian at the Oakland Branch Library, and my pronouns are she, her.
1: Hi, my name is Peter Schenkel. I'm the author of Uniting America. I'm a big fan of the Cranston Public Library, and um, my pronouns are he, him.
0: Thank you for joining us today. A little bit later in the show, we will talk about Uniting America um, and why this book is such an important book at this moment in time. Um, But before we get into that, let's start off as we always do with what have you been reading?
1: Well, most recently, I've been reading um, about the governor of New York, Al Smith, who ran for the presidency in 1928. And that's because uh, my next book is going to be about Al Smith and the um, anti-Catholic campaign that was conducted uh, by the Ku Klux Klan to ensure that he was defeated in the election of 1928. So I've been reading a great biography called Empire Statesman, The Rise and Redemption of Al Smith by Robert A. Slayton. It's it's a great book and it it captures the times and the incredible environment in which he grew up and came to age. he grew up on the Lower East side of New York. and um, he built a remarkable alliance uh, of, of um, with Jewish um, labor activists and um, social reformers on the Lower East Side. And it was kind of the nucleus of the of the original or of the Democratic Party, the modern Democratic Party. And um, the Ku Klux Klan and white supremacists, Democrats from the South wanted to ensure that he was never elected. And so they began to attack his Catholicism. And um, they carried this campaign out across the country. And so this book um, is a remarkable uh, examination of his career. And it's a good foundation for what I'm working on now.
0: Fantastic. I guess I didn't realize that the Ku Klux Klan went after Catholics.
1: Yes. For most of us who, you know... I'm 62 years old. So most of us grew up thinking of the Ku Klux Klan as um, sort of a, a, an outlaw, um, racist band, mostly targeting African-Americans. But in the version of the 1920s, when when the Klan was immensely powerful and had millions of members across the United States, um, it had a very strong anti-Catholic component, and it... it carried that campaign across the United States in many ways through newspapers and radios and um keeping catholics out of power was a big part of their mission wow and they were active actually here in Rhode Island as well wow yeah
0: again you think of it as like the south is really where they were uh
1: yes exactly um uh, in fact the clan was um from Maine to California and Washington to Florida, it crisscrossed the country. It was in every state. Uh, it's it's a remarkable time, and I think that um, many people don't realize how how gargantuan that organization was in the 20s. And it it is also, I, I think, uh, um, uh, brings lessons for our time as well. Um, how hatreds can be deployed to achieve political ends, and um, uh, I think we see that over and over in today's world.
0: So I haven't read this book recently, and I think I've talked about it on the show before, but another book, not in the 20s, later in, in the in the time that we kind of traditionally think of of the Klan doing a lot of their really outward hate crimes. Um, I read Superman Slashes the Klan, which is by Gene Luen Young, who is a, a graphic novel author and artist. He did American Boy in Chinese. He did a book, Dragon Hoops, which is about his own life and him kind of like stumbling on this story about basketball. Um, but in this book, he was given the opportunity to write about Superman and um, addressed a lot of like the anti-Asian um, sentiment amongst the clan and some of the the like Asian racially motivated kind of like threatening and and vandalism uh, you know cross burning and stuff that they were doing right after world war ii um this family ended up being chinese and and the uh, the book highlights that there was actually a lot of like pro chinese sentiment after world war ii because uh the chinese were on the allies side versus um japan being one of the Axis powers so it was like there's like people asking her like what are you Japanese? And then them being like, no, we're Chinese. And they be like, oh, good. <laughs> like,
1: <laughs> wow, that sounds like a great book.
0: Yeah. And there's some back matter that kind of goes into the research that he was doing and a little bit about his family's kind of like immigration story. Um, Cause he's first generation American, I believe.
1: Interesting. So that's, that's all, nonfiction.
0: Uh, no, it's fiction. It's, uh, it's fiction. about Superman, but um, okay. but like I said, there's back matter talking about the stuff that he based in real life. You know, the stuff that was actually happening about like what the Klu Klux Klan was doing. Um, it also was inspired by this radio play that happened. Um, that was like a Superman radio play mm. uh, where DC basically had to come up with their own name for the Ku Klux Klan because the Klu Klux Klan wanted to like bring legal action against dc for like defamation and stuff so that it was like the the clan of the fiery cross or something they like came up with something that was like still very evocative of like it's very obvious who we're talking about but without actually using their name because there was like like you said they were i think this radio play was possibly like in the 30s so like you said they they were a very powerful kind of organization at the time
1: yeah, they, they they ultimately, the Klan the organization would file for bankruptcy, I think, in, in about 1940. Um, but of course, it, it's like a virus, this organization. It keeps coming back. And every little um, person filled with hate who wants to try to spread their message forms a new version of the Klan. And so you get these little groups popping up wherever um in the 20s however in contrast there was a national clan and it created chapters across the country it was much more of a structured organization but that's a fascinating book that you're discussing so is is it a um it's a graphic novel
0: it's a graphic novel dc's been doing a real push of like one-off graphic novels for like the middle grade young adult audiences so like getting kids who kind of know these heroes from movies or tv like getting them in in a way that's not having to read you know <laughs> lots and lots of back issues figure out continuity uh you know and and uh like but when they just re up continuity and everything have it be like its own self contained story and like i yeah. said uh Gene Lu really took the opportunity to To write about something historical that was going on in a story about Superman.
1: (laughs) Wonderful, very interesting.
0: So, uh, besides reading, have you been watching anything interesting lately?
1: Of course, I loved watching Barbie the movie a while back, and Oppenheimer. Those those were great pieces of work. I thought. I also recently watched O Azar Baltazar, which is a classic French film about. Uh, a donkey and uh, uh, how that donkey experiences humanity. And it's mostly through abusive treatment and some affection. Um, But this is a movie um, that was um, produced, I I believe, and released in 1966. What was kind of interesting to me is that, I don't know if you saw the movie EO that came out a couple of years ago, also about a donkey, and I believe that came from the Czech Republic, and um, that was uh, a remarkable depiction of humanity through the eyes of a donkey. Again, and then we had the Banshees of Inisharan, uh, which also gave a central role to a donkey, um, which is just—it's just funny. I don't—I I didn't realize that there was this. Uh, trend in in movie producers to take the allegory of of humanity's mistreatment of donkeys as a as a way of uh, reflecting on how humans conduct themselves <laughs> um, it was just kind of interesting i just didn't realize there were so many movies that use that theme and there are probably other animals that um have this central place in in cinematography, but but I, I, I just found it fascinating.
0: Well, you think of like Beasts of Burden, they, you know, they work for human beings. Like we've, we've domesticated them to do jobs for us. When you were talking, just maybe think about how many horse movies there are. Um, but I think horses in movies are generally portrayed a little more affectionately because there are so many people who have such like strong affectionate connections to horses They're, i don't know they're they're more viewed as pets than than animals that do jobs for us
1: yes they inspire us they're yeah they're beautiful graceful fast creatures whereas uh a donkey is performing a service for us mm. for that reason perhaps we should be all the more grateful and instead it turns out we end up being all the more abusive anyway um How about you? What have you been watching?
0: Um, Well, the unfortunate thing about recording two days in a row is that it's hard for me to have new things to talk about. So I don't know if this will stay in because I did talk about it at length in our recording yesterday. Mm -hmm. Uh, But my mom and I started watching The Gilded Age on HBO Max. Mm. Um, It was very interesting uh, kind of period drama about the tension between the old money in New York and the new money of people who made their fortune through the railroad and and a lot of the other rising industry happening at the time. Um, One thing I did not say yesterday, though, (laughs) um, is I'm a bit, I would say, very, very amateur, but I have a very... Uh, amateur interest in dress history. I love seeing how people dressed in different periods of time. Mm -hmm. And from what I've consumed on YouTube that has told me about how people dressed during that time, the costumes have been very accurate and well done. It's not a terribly like racy show. There has been some kind of like having the cigarette afterwards scenes. All of them between two men just for interesting twists. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have yet to see what people's undergarments on are on screen, whereas a lot of period dramas, we do get to see what ha- them and whether they're good or not. But that's kind mm-hmm. of whether I judge whether something is good or not. Mm-hmm. Um, because, the and I was saying this to my mom, the the undergarments and the way that the garments were constructed then were really what created the silhouette versus now fashion has become about a body type. Mm. You would need to have a body type that makes certain clothes look good, but then it was really about the clothing and, and your structural pieces underneath creating the silhouette that was fashionable at the time. Mm. Um, So like I said, we've yet to see them on screen, but so far I'm assuming they're fairly accurate um, and if they're wearing them accurately, meaning not right against their skin, the actresses should be more comfortable. Do you interview anyone who was in a period drama and they had to wear a corset and they're like, oh, my God, it was so uncomfortable. And it was like, well, did your costumers include the layers under your corsetry? Like that's was very important in how people were able to wear it every day. Mm hmm. There's also class stuff there, too. They do make one comment about corsets being uncomfortable in the show, um, but she is an upper class new money person. And at that time, she probably would have been lacing down, meaning you're purposely using the garment to make your waist significantly smaller than it actually is.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: So that was accurate. She probably was somewhat uncomfortable because she was probably corseting down. Whereas like working class people, like that was just, that was like the undergarments we wear today. It was normal for them. It was providing them support while they were active in their lives. It was allowing their clothes to fit properly. Uh, and so they were probably just fine. And it was as normal as, you know, the undergarments that women wear today.
1: How about some of the other aspects of um, life in, in New York City at that time? Do you feel the the Show is capturing that well.
0: Um, yeah, I mean, again, that's not—it's not something that I have a, a terrible amount of knowledge of. It's really kind of comparing other things set around that time that mm-hmm. I've consumed or or read. Mm-hmm. Um, they actually are addressing racism during that time, so that's something that's interesting. There is a a middle class black woman who is part of kind of the central cast of characters. Um, And they're kind of showing that she, um, she gets hired by this wealthy family and it's as a secretary. So there's kind of tension with the downstairs help of like that she's you know, above certain people in station where she's staying in the house because she's a secretary for the head of the household. So that puts Mm -hmm. her in the pecking order above other people who are in their all other white help staff. Mm-hmm. And so there's like, they're showing that there's tension there. and that's, But it's nice because some of them are good about it. Like the head kind of butler guy who like keeps everyone else in line is just all like, she's a secretary and so she is in the part of the house that she should be in. Given her station, and there's nothing that we can do about that. Like mm-hmm. he's a lot of these. Like it's not our place to have opinions about those things.
1: <laughs> Very interesting.
0: And that's how he keeps everything <laughs> kind of under control. Is he's all just like ours is not to question why. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. That sounds like I I have not seen that. I'm gonna try to try to see that. That sounds great.
0: They are long episodes though, like an hour plus. So. Be aware. Get comfortable
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: before you start.
1: Okay. What about um, Killers of the Flower Moon? Have you considered going to that? Speaking of long shows.
0: I don't know. In terms of movies, I don't tend to gravitate towards like period pieces. I don't know <laughs> why. Um, I'm not familiar with the book. I can picture the cover in my head. I remember when it was going out and on hold and, and all of that. Great book. But I'm not really familiar with the the material at all. In order to have felt drawn to it, yeah. Well, you
1: know, it's uh, to me, it's uh, the book is incredibly well done, and um, and anything that Martin Scorsese does, I I tend to want to see it immediately. I've got to say that three hours and forty five minutes is a, is really pushing it in yeah. terms of length of a movie. Yeah. But, yeah, you know, I'm still going to see it, but I haven't yet.
0: <laughs> so you going to put, like, an intermission in, like, when they did Titanic and you, like, had to switch tapes?
1: Exactly. They did something. <laughs> something. I don't know. I'm looking forward to seeing it, but <laughs> I might have to bring a pillow. I don't know.
0: <laughs> yeah. Worth going one of those theaters with like the you know the comfier seats in it but then then you might pay to fall asleep though that's that's (laughs) that's the kind of needle that you have to thread of like do i want to be comfortable (laughs) with and risk the fact that i paid like 20 dollars to fall asleep (laughs) right but hopefully it's engaging enough that you don't
1: right that would be the hope
0: and we'll return to the show after a quick break Cranston Public Library is pleased to bring poetry to our patrons, all without leaving the comfort of home. No internet, computer, or smartphone required. A recorded poem read by a CPL staff member will be available every Tuesday afternoon. To listen, call 401-900-1090 and be sure to check back weekly to hear what's new. For more information about this service, please visit cranstonlibrary.org on the line. Users of Cranston Public Library can now access their favorite digital magazines using Flipster. Flipster offers an easy, browsable reading experience. Users can browse magazines by category as well as perform searches for specific titles. An online newsstand provides a carousel of most recent issues as well as a carousel of all issues, allowing for quick access to magazines. Go to cranstonlibrary.org and click the link Online Resources You Can Use Now, to find more information on how you can access Flipster. Flipster also has an app available on Android and iOS. All right, so I want us to have enough time to talk about what you came here to talk about. So um, you wrote a book, Uniting America. Um, Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what that book is about?
1: Um, Uniting America is about... How uh, at a time of tremendous political division in the United States, uh, two political leaders, one a Republican and one a Democrat, crossed the partisan divide and built an alliance to bring the country together and prepare the country to fight Adolf Hitler and the rise of fascism. And they succeeded. They succeeded in building that alliance. They succeeded in preparing the country. They succeeded in bringing the country together and enabling it to work toward a common goal, which is to defend democracy and spread democracy to those countries that that wanted it. And um, the two leaders, of course, are Franklin D. Roosevelt, the president, and Henry Stimson, whom FDR... Named his Secretary of War in June of 1940, and uh, I came across this um, through working on my previous book, which made me aware that there that in during the war years there was this cadre of Republicans running the War Department, and I began trying to understand how that came to pass, and I learned about President Roosevelt's reaching across to Henry Stimson, as well as to Frank Knox, um, who was the, uh, mate, whom he appointed secretary of the Navy. And both of these were prominent, um, uh, cabinet positions at the time. And, um, today those positions are not, not so well known, but this was a big deal at a time, um, when war, uh, was rumors of war were, uh, and actual war, um, was much in the news. And um, the world was facing a, a tremendous crisis that obviously was going to call on us to be prepared militarily. Um, and so I began digging into it and and uh, discovered this incredible story of bipartisanship. and um, And it dawned on me that, you know, here we are in a time in America when we have amazing hyper-partisanship. The two parties are just, um, very much at each other's throats and, and unable to, um, reach common ground and find solutions. Um, and, um, I thought by exploring how this bipartisan alliance during the war achieved such amazing things for us, um, uh, That would be a wonderful story to tell, and it could help us find a path forward today.
0: And so it seems like you had a lot of details of kind of how this bipartisan deal partnership came to be because of the soon-to-be Secretary of War's diaries. There was a lot of primary sources about what was happening at the time from his perspective.
1: Exactly right. Um, Henry Stimson kept an amazing diary um, all through the war years, um, and actually going back in his career with references as early as 1903, um, he had been Secretary of War previously. He had also been Secretary of State under Herbert Hoover, who was FDR's predecessor, and he kept an amazingly detailed diary um, with – typed out entries for virtually every day. Um, And and his diary during the Second World War is is one of the preeminent source documents that historians use. Um, I mean, there are many, many other documents, but it is very often cited. Um, And by the way, uh, I should note that I was working on this book during the COVID pandemic, And uh, initially, I began going to look at the diary where it's housed at Yale University in the special collections there. Um, But that was closed during the pandemic. And so I began looking for uh, another local source. That's when the Cranston Public Library and Dave Bartos came in and rescued me. Uh, Dave helped me find microfilm copies of the diaries and... um, brought them in uh, through interlibrary loan, and it was um, a tremendous help to me. And so I'm, I, have, I already was a big believer in local public libraries, but uh, after that, I, I now sing their praises whenever I can, um, and particularly the Cranston Public Library and, and Dave, who did such an amazing job for me in, in helping me with those resources.
0: We appreciate it. And we were happy to help. And I'm happy to hear it because a lot of times like the public library can't always field some of these in-depth research questions. So like you said, Yale and, and other university and college libraries, they're really the ones that build their collections for researchers like you and, uh, and other people who want to um, engage with source material and, and really write about a particular subject.
1: Well, there's a a world of, of research materials available through the interlibrary loan system.
0: That is very true.
1: Yeah, most people are probably unaware of that, but it is out there, and and uh, I encourage anyone to, if they really want to look into something, to to make use of it. And um, so, yeah, it was very helpful to me, that's for sure.
0: Well, very glad to hear it. So, um, what is the thing that stood out to you the most kind of about this narrative that emerged during World War II with FDR and, and his kind of bipartisan, um, efforts during the war? What was the kind of moment when you were like, wow, there, there's something here and it's something that people need to know about?
1: You know, there, there are so many elements of the story that to me are absolutely fascinating. But one of them is that, um, Stimson and Roosevelt, they both grew up uh, in New York state and they were prominent within New York state. Um, uh, Both had attended Harvard, both had deep ties to Wall Street. Stimson was a very successful lawyer um, on Wall Street, uh, representing lots of corporate clients. Uh, FDR, of course, had multi-generational wealth and, and lots of connections to Wall Street, but they had never met. And um, w- the first time they met was in January of 1933, right after FDR won the presidential election. He's still waiting to get uh, to, to for his inauguration and preparing for it. And Stimson is still the Secretary of State, um, and they meet at FDR's uh, ancestral home, um, Springwood in Hyde Park, New York, and that begins. A friendly dialogue between the two men. And uh, they sort of set aside from the very beginning, they set aside some of the, the partisanship. And um, they began talking shortly thereafter about the importance of defending democracy, even in, as in the early 30s. Um, as Hitler uh, would rise to power and the Japanese fascists would rise to power, um, they, they began a friendly dialogue. And it continued This Alliance of Trust was built over many years. So um, it, it wouldn't be until five or more years later that Stimson would actually be appointed Secretary of War by FDR. But it, it's fascinating to see how they were able to have a dialogue across the party partisan divide. And um, that does raise a concern. Are, are politicians today having those kind of Talks across the partisan divide, or is it absolute war? And they have no no foundation upon which to build an alliance of trust. Um, that's a concern. That's a legitimate concern about what's going on in American politics today. Um, another thing that was fascinating about this bipartisan alliance was how um, it played a role in reshaping the um, the Democratic Party. Toward becoming the, the party of civil rights. Um, and FDR had a vision of changing the democratic party from its hybrid nature of having, um, white supremacists in the South and a liberal pro-labor pro-immigrant pro-civil rights party in the North to being more of a, uh, unified liberal party. Um, and, um, FDR had this vision because of conflicts that had arisen during the war, um, where he was fighting with Southern Democrats. They didn't want him, for example, he began uh, with Henry Stimson's support to desegregate the war industries, and the Southern Democrats hated that, and he also again, with Stimson's support, sought to enable all soldiers to vote, including black soldiers and the Southern Democrats hated that. So when, when FDR developed a vision and said, we really need to make this Democratic Party all liberal all the time, he reached a crowd across to tell his friend or his, his other Republican ally, Wendell Wilkie, about this idea. And um, from that moment on, um, the Democrats began their trajectory towards civil rights. Um, FDR's successor, Harry Truman uh, would a number of years later desegregate the army. And of course, JFK would continue with the civil rights, drafting the civil rights bill and Lyndon Johnson and so forth. It would play out over the decades, but it began right here when FDR extended a hand across to liberal or moderate Republican Henry Stimson. And um, so it's a it's a fascinating um, story that not only explains how America was able to pull itself together and win World War II, but it also ex- describes the birth of the the transformation of the American political parties into the parties that we see today.
0: What you were describing, was he almost trying to poise it so that these Southern Democrats could just go and become part of the Republican Party?
1: No, he he sincerely believed that all Americans should be involved in the war effort and that um, black Americans should not be kept out of jobs with the war industries. And he he did not set out to alienate the Southern white supremacist Democrats. Um, That was a byproduct of what he wanted to achieve.
0: Yeah, creating a clear mission for the party.
1: I'm sure that if the Southern white supremacist Democrats had come back and said, yes, we agree with this effort of yours, and it was called the Fair Employment Practices Committee, and it demanded that those massive companies making planes and tanks and ships for the U.S. military not segregate their uh, labor forces um if if they if the white supremacists had agreed with that FDR would have said that's great we're all in <laughs> but, but uh, that's he i think he knew that that would not happen yeah uh, he probably hoped that somehow it would but it it would not and it did not and um that's what uh there quickly became um uh, threats from the south that the party would split even during FDR's administration the, the the Southern Democrats said they would not support FDR for re-election in 1944. Um, it became very hostile very quickly in the middle of the Second World War. We had a, a, a tremendous civil rights struggle in the United States in the middle of the Second World War. Um, there was a, a race riot in which uh, 30 people lost their lives, most of them black people, in, De- in um, Detroit. In June of 1943, um, that was a riot caused mostly because uh, white mobs were upset over uh, black people taking jobs in the uh, war industries. And um, white mobs went around uh, Detroit, um, overturning black owned vehicles and setting them on fire. Um, It was, and Stimson and FDR, sent the army into Detroit. Um, it was a time of tremendous um, turmoil inside the United States, which we so often forget about. All the focus is on the external conflict and, and the war that was going on in, in Germany and, and Japan but, uh, and in Europe. Uh, but uh, in fact, the United States itself was in tremendous turmoil.
0: It's, it's interesting to me. It makes me think about the fact that, you know, there are these periods in time and history that we think about as real expansions of civil rights for, for particular causes. So obviously the, the 50s into the 60s, we think about it as a huge expansion of civil rights for Black Americans. Later into the 60s and 70s, we think of as a huge expansion of rights for the LBGT. Uh, Americans, even though they weren't referring to themselves as that then, um, but if you look into this, you'll the same thing is with kind of queer history. There were people advocating for this and and demonstrations and sometimes you know riots and unfortunate things happening before yeah. the what what we think of traditionally as like when all of this political action was happening in in the fifties. I'm totally blanking on the names of there's like one for lesbians and one for gay men, these societies of people who were demonstrating, they would do demonstrations where they would wear, they would dress up, they would wear suits um, and women would wear like nice dresses. Cause their kind of whole thought was we're just like you, you know, we mm-hmm. want a life just like you want. We have jobs, we have families, we want to create families. Um, you know, we just want, you know, love and lifelong partnership, just like everyone else. Um, there was a movement away from that, obviously, after Stonewall and more of just like, no, we're going to be who we want to be, not conform to what society wants us to be. But like the the stones were being laid way before that first stone was thrown.
1: That's right. That's right. It, it, these um, uh, movements build over time and, and they start with tiny steps. Um, uh, but of course... Um, uh, I mean, the struggle for freedom of Black Americans had begun long before, and yes, continued in many, many forms. Um, um, the fact that, but what 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 happened in the in um, the nineteen forties and with FDR and Henry Stimson was a you know a, a recognition by the federal government of that struggle and of its importance. That mm-hmm. was the The change there and of the party in power in the White House. Um, Now, I should add quickly that um, Henry Stimson and FDR did not desegregate the armed forces. And the NAACP and um, other civil rights leaders um, had wanted the armed forces to be desegregated. Um, But um, they rejected that feeling that in the midst of the war was not the right time to do that. Um, and and one can see some rationale to their thinking because this was an era in which racial violence was common. Um, lynchings were common, common. I mean, there were multiple lynchings every year for, for the, in, in the first half of the 20th century. So, um, I can see some why um, even the most uh, pro civil rights activists would hesitate before saying we should mix a, a bunch of white men and black men in a in a um, housing situation. Um, but be that as it may, um, uh, there's plenty of arguments why they should have, and they did not. And so I don't mean to suggest that that this was an era of tremendous leap forward for civil rights, because it was not. Um, And it also is an era in which Stimson and Roosevelt also both approved um, the internment of Japanese Americans, um, which is another enduring stain on American democracy, uh, right? Even as we were fighting for um, civil rights and and equal treatment of citizens under under the rule of law, um, there were these major failures. And, and uh, nothing is, a, is an easy road forward and everything it comes with a struggle. And, th- and that's part of what the book is about, is talking about these, these struggles as well. I don't want to overlook those by talking about, you know, this big kumbaya experience of the two parties getting together. So um, I try to explain in my book um, how they wrestled with those issues um, and, and their failures as well. Um, they're not, they're not perfect people. They had flaws. They, they failed. They were dealing with, um, very complicated situations. And and so that's the story that I try to tell in the book. Um, and so, but ultimately I think the story is how remarkably much they were able to achieve by setting partisanship aside. Um, and, uh, I, I still believe to this day that that's, Uh, something that the two major parties need to consider at this time.
0: Yeah, well, that leads me well into my next question, and it's probably a big question that we can't go in in depth, but what do you think that we today can learn from the events that you outline in your book?
1: Well, I think that um, we actually, personally, I I believe we face a situation today not unlike um, the one that Stimson and Roosevelt faced. There's a tremendous threat to democracy uh, right now, and it comes from both within our country and without. Uh, And the first and most obvious threat is is Vladimir Putin, who in essence is a state power, fascist, anti-democratic force uh, threatening to crush uh, the young democracy of Ukraine, and um, frankly, threatening other democracies in, that, in its region. Um, and we also face um, a threat to American democracy within. And I'm talking about Donald Trump, who attempted to seize power and overturn a rightful presidential election. And um, to my view, uh, Republicans who believe in democracy and who believe in um, the rule of law, who believe in constitutional government, who believe in Equal rights for all citizens, as set down in our founding documents, um, should set partisanship aside and work with anyone across the aisle, um, and that means Joe Biden in this instance, to try to protect our democracy. And I think there are plenty of Republicans out there who are prepared to do that. The question is, can the Democratic Party build an alliance with enough of them to actually help us succeed in, in fighting this threat. I mean, The threat is that, that Donald Trump is going to be a re-elected president at this time. That's that's the threat we face. And um, he's a, a known supporter of Vladimir Putin. He tried to give Vladimir Putin a, a penthouse uh, in a building he proposed to build in Moscow. Um, he is a, a clear threat to American democracy. And so what Joe Biden and the Democrats need to do is build an alliance with those Republicans who are willing to condemn Donald Trump. Um, and so far, um, I think Biden has failed in that regard. It's, it's really quite interesting to me. He talks a lot about bipartisanship, and he also talks about how much he loves Franklin Roosevelt, considers him a role model. But in fact, Joe Biden has not appointed a single Republican to his cabinet um, which is interesting because it it um, puts him in rather uncomfortable company. Um, since the end of World War II, we've had 13 presidents. Nine of them have made bipartisan appointments to their cabinets. Four have not. Joe Biden is one of those four. The other three are Jimmy Carter, George H. W. Bush, and Donald Trump. And what do you notice about all four of those presidents who did not make bipartisan appointments? They're all one-term presidents.
0: That's true.
1: That doesn't mean you're necessarily going to win re-election if you make a bipartisan appointment, but it does suggest that it's, it's kind of an indicator, right, that you're, you're willing to reach across to the other side and get their votes. Um, and so uh, there's an, another interesting parallel, historical parallel here which is that in um, 1940, FDR was running for his third presidential election. And there was a lot of criticism of that. Um, There was also criticism that he was getting to be too old to be president. Hmm. It had been a tough eight years through the creation of the New Deal, the rise of Hitler's fascism. Um, And that was when FDR appointed his two Republican cabinet members, Henry Stimson and Frank Knox, in June of 1940. It was right before the Republican National Convention, and it threw the convention into turmoil. Um, A lot of talk at the convention was surrounded the fact that people hated that these Republicans had been named, and they called upon them to reject the offers of the positions, and they swore that they were traitors and that they should be tossed out of the party. And then the party quickly turned on its heel and rejected the isolationist candidate, uh, Robert Taft, the senator of Ohio, who was considered one of the leaders. And instead, they chose Wendell Willkie, whose policies were much closer to FDR's. And the point that I'm trying to make is that there there is similarity between the status of Joe Biden right now and FDR in 1940. An aging president um, challenged from within, even his own vice president thought he shouldn't become president again. Um, so um, by naming these two Republicans to his cabinet, he got a lot of uh, cross-party support in a tough race and um that's another reason why joe biden should consider making bipartisan appointments today um of anti-trump politicians is what i would say um because i think that there's a, a good portion of the republican party probably 10 or 15% of republicans who hate what trump is doing to their party right now and and by um bringing republicans into his cabinet um Biden could do what President Obama Obama called create a permission structure, create a a way of thinking for Republicans to think about, oh, what these Democrats are doing is right. And I should vote for them. And uh, so um, that's the lesson I think uh, that comes from this book for today's America is, you know, we need to work across partisan lines to save democracy. We're in that kind of situation right now. And, um, I, am I'm just, I did send president Biden a copy of my book. I don't, I will confess. I never heard (laughs) a word from the white house. I I don't think he's going to take my advice, but, uh, I I did send it just in case he was interested, probably sitting in a storage room or maybe it's been gone straight to the garbage dump. Who knows?
0: (laughs) Uh, I was gonna say maybe like an intern took it or something. (laughs) Free book score.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Right.
0: Uh, (laughs) Um, So if people want to check out your book and your other work, where can they find more info about you online?
1: Oh, We'll have a website, petershingle.com. I believe Uniting America is on the shelf at at, uh, my local bookshop, which is here in Barrington, Rhode Island. And um, I don't know. Is it on the shelf at Cranston Public Library?
0: Yes. So we have a copy as well as other libraries in the state, I'm sure.
1: Yeah. And of course, it's available online um, through Amazon and other booksellers.
0: So, we end the show with a segment I call The Last Chapter, where we talk about a library or bookish related question. So, I thought I would ask you today if you were forced, or maybe that's a strong word, compelled to read outside of your comfort zone, which genre or topic would you choose and why?
1: Well, after our talk today, I would certainly read. Um, your graphic novel recommendation.
0: <laughs> Superman Smashes the Clan.
1: Yes, absolutely. It sounds fabulous. I can't wait to read it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it sounds really interesting and fun. And um, I, I look, I've look i been wanting... I've had an interest in graphic novels for a long time. I've looked at a couple of them, but I'd like to go to back to it and get to that one.
0: <laughs> okay. I can also give you another, I think... I personally have been very excited about graphic nonfiction and the state of graphic nonfiction now. Um, I think it is an amazing opportunity to make nonfiction more accessible, more digestible. And there's actually studies that show that when there's visual and uh, written information being conveyed, the people actually remember it more and retain the information more. Mm. It's called the Free Speech Handbook, I think it is very impressive in the scope that it is able to cover without being overwhelming or hard to digest and it basically goes through all of the or uh, the major Supreme Court case law that has led to our understanding of free speech in the 1st Amendment that we have today. Mm. Um, so it really, uh, as someone who is interested in intellectual freedom and freedom of speech, it really gave me an understanding of how we, how we got where we are today and exactly what we mean when we talk about free speech and freedom of expression in a way that I had not understood it before.
1: Wonderful. Thank you for that recommendation. I'll You're try welcome. to take a look at it.
0: I got, I wanted to plug it again cause I've been thinking about it and how good it is. And I just, I want more people to check it out because I think we all are affected by this. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like we all are affected by constitutional law because it is what dictates our rights as citizens in our country. And so I think it's an amazing tool for literacy in that arena for people.
1: Yeah. Well, that makes complete sense. By the way, I should say, um, while I'm, a. A nonfiction writer and, and journalist, I I do place a, a, a lot of stock in having good photographs in a book. I, I find them they 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 quickly bring the story home. They make it feel more immediate and real. So I put a lot of effort into curating the photos that are in my book, Uniting America. Um, I, I really I love the photos. Frankly, I think they're very powerful. So I, I can see why um, in cl- graphic nonfiction it has a lot of power. Uh, I'd like to take a look at that. Thank you for that recommendation.
0: You're welcome. And on the flip side, also kind of from our conversation, I think if I were to explore outside my comfort zone, it probably would be traditional nonfiction, particularly history. I I, I would say I don't usually gravitate towards reading about history in Um, In my pleasure reading, I've talked about it before that for me, a lot of like history in school felt like a lot about memorizing dates and learning about a bunch of white men and why they were mad at each other and went to war. (laughs) Not terribly (laughs) appealing to me. Um, But like I said previously, things like dress history and and kind of like the everyday history of people and how they lived. That is something that I find very interesting. So maybe that would be an inroads for me um, to read history more, is to read more about how people, regular people actually lived, how women lived. Um, That's what I'm really interested in.
1: Mm -hmm. Good. I wish I had a recommendation to make for you. (laughs) Right now, nothing's coming to mind, but I'm sure you can find it.
0: So thank you for um, chatting with me today and thank you everyone for listening. If you would like to respond to our last chapter question or just reach out to the show, you can do that at downtime at CranstonLibrary.org. You can also reach out to us via social media with the hashtag DowntimeCPL. If you're feeling generous, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts because it helps people find the show. Thank you again for listening. And this has been another episode of Downtime. Downtime is a project of the Cranston Public Library and is produced by Elena Rios, Robin Nizio, and me, Taylor Cardillo. Audio engineering by Dave Bartos. Our theme music is Day Trips by Ketza. And our ad music is Happy Ukulele by Scott Holmes. Links to the books and movies discussed can be found in the show notes. Remember to rate and review Downtime on Apple Podcasts. Connect with the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram with the hashtag DowntimeCPL. And if there's something you'd like to hear on the show, send an email to downtime at cranstonlibrary.org. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed are the speaker's own and do not represent those of the Cranston Public Library. The material and information presented here is for general information purposes only. The Cranston Public Library name, in all forms and abbreviation, are the property of its owners, and its use does not imply endorsement or opposition to any specific organization, product, or service. The content of this episode is the property of the Cranston Public Library and may not be reproduced without express written permission. Join us next week for more Downtime. Okay, we can't leave that in the podcast, but sorry, that just came
1: out. (laughs) Sorry. Uh